I'm super stoked about this new series that we are kicking off today uh, titled Not Interested, right? Three reasons why rational people, rational people kind of reject Christianity. Three reasons why rational people, people that we love and care for, people that we do life with, people that we know, whether we work with, our neighbors and whatnot, people we like to hang with that don't have a relationship with Jesus, and why they will kind of push away, reject, kind of say, nah, I'm not interested to Christianity. Now, some of it might kind of, kind of offend you over the next several weeks. And, uh, and so if I had a t-shirt, I would give it to you say, don't be offended, right? Uh, if you're listening to it for the first time, you may say, oh my God, this makes absolute sense. No wonder Jennifer don't want to come to church, right? Um, and so some of you may be hearing it and saying, you know what, man, that's, that's me. I do that. And so we're going continu- to go grow. We're going to learn. We're going to listen. And we're going to see what God has to say. So let me ask you this. Have you ever not wanted to admit that you're a Christian? I know none of you are going to raise your hand. I'm in church. I'm, not, I'm a Christian. Right? Uh, but I'll, I'll be first to admit, I have been there. I have done that. I still do it today. And there are a lot of reasons why I do that, right? I've done that many a times. And, and, and like I said, it, it, there's reasons behind it. But it has nothing to do, absolutely nothing to do with my belief in or my devotion uh, to being a follower of Jesus. I am a follower of Jesus. I I want people to know that I'm a follower of Jesus. But there are some certain things that kind of play out that I kind of try to bob and weave when I have or interact with people who don't know Jesus, who do not have a relationship with Jesus. It has really to do with my suspicion that different people define the word Christianity or Christian in different ways. And some of those descriptions are things that I don't want to be associated with, if, if, if I'm honest. Some of these things that they've attached to Christianity, I am trying to, trying to sideswipe, trying to step away, don't want to be really associated with their interpretation, their understanding, their perspective on Christianity. In fact, Sometimes it limits my interaction with people because the moment I say I am a Christian or I'm a pastor or I'm a follower of Christ, <laughs> be like, oh, thank you very much. Nice meeting you. They walk away. It's like, is it my breath? Was it something I said? Do I look funny? Maybe you've been there before. Someone saw that you were tagged in a church post or notice you reading your Bible on your lunch break and, and, uh, or were incognito putting Easter invite flyers in people's cars, right, on their windshield, right, after work, and they asked you at some point, right, they kind of point blank and said, man, are you a Christian? Are you a follower of Christ? And you said something like, well, well, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a Christ follower, right? I'm a Christ follower, or man, I, I, I believe in, in Jesus, but, or I, I really like my church, but, or I guess technically, uh, technically I am, but not the kind that you're thinking of, right? Even though you have no idea of what they're thinking. Maybe none of, none of this 
has ever, ever occurred to you, but you've tried inviting people to church before and they looked at you like you were crazy to think that they would want to go to church with you or have anything to do with that. And not all of their reasons are entirely ridiculous. In this series, we're going to talk about these things. We're going to talk about three of the main ones that actually make a lot of sense. So let's start with the first reason why rational people reject Christianity. Number one, they reject Christianity because it breeds ignorant people who use the Bible to avoid reason. I'm going to let you break down and understand that reason right here. Because it breeds ignorant people who use the Bible to avoid reason. Now, some of you are like, um, it's going to get hot in here, right? Ever seen kids at church yelling, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, to any and every question that is asked of them, regardless of what that question is? The Bible, the Bible, the Bible. Grown-up Christians are like that to a certain extent as well. Christians view Scripture as having, a spe having special authority, believing the Bible has all the answers. And it does, sort of. Let me, let me break this down a bit. The Bible speaks to every subject, but not directly about every subject. Say that again. The Bible speaks to every subject, but not directly about every subject. Because certain things aren't in the Bible. Certain things aren't in the Bible. You can't just flip to the back of the book, find a page number next to your question, and get a black and white answer, or yes or no answer for every imaginable situation. Ever had, anybody ever had one of those Bibles that you turned to the back and you looked up a topic and they spoke about that topic? But if you sat there and tried to ask, ask situation of where you are today in your life, you may not find the direct arrow pointing to the Bible. For example, what does the Bible say about social media? We're very opinionated about social media, aren't we? What does the Bible say about cursing? We have our own thoughts about that as well. What does the Bible say about R-rated movies? What does the Bible say about drinking? What does the Bible say about guns? What does the Bible say about democracy? What does the Bible say about socialism versus capitalism? Truth be told, the answer is nothing. Well, not directly. To some of us, this, this, this sounds absurd. Of course it does, Pastor. The Bible speaks to every situation, in every circumstance, everywhere. We feel like we have a clear picture of the Bible's firm, cut and dry stance on all of these things. But I want to tell you this morning that if you do, <laughs> you didn't get it from the Bible. You didn't get it from the Bible. What had happened was, you internalize someone's interpretation and application of a part of the Bible that may or, might not, or may not have been taken out of context or be the right thing for everyone, everywhere, for all time. 
I'll repeat that a little slower. What happened was that you internalized someone's interpretation, someone else's interpretation and application of a part of the Bible that may or may not have been taken out of context or be the right thing for everyone, everywhere, for all time. Some of you are like, I can't believe you just said that, Pastor E. Oh, I can't believe you just said that. I knew this place. I knew this place would water down the scriptures and doesn't take the Bible seriously. Listen to this. Taking the Bible seriously means approaching it with humility to wrestle with how an ancient Eastern document applies to a modern Western world. Listen, for Scripture to speak to our situation, it has to be put into context, interpreted, and applied. We just can't be going, I'm going to take this, and I'm going to take that, and I'm going to definitely take this, and I'm going to put it here, because it applies, and it sounds so good. Because that's what I wanted to say about my situation. Friends, the reality is even the most rigid fundamentalist doesn't follow everything the Bible says. Let me give you some examples. Wearing gold or braiding your hair. If you wear gold or braid your hair, just raise your hand. Come on, play with me. Play along. Right? The Bible says you're not supposed to do that. It says it in 1 Timothy 2.9. That's what the Bible says. How about wearing that tri-blend t-shirt, that real soft t-shirt? You might have that real soft that is not really cotton because it's not stiff, but it's not polyester because it's, it's not, you know, it's just nice and soft. How many wear those? A lot of us do. You probably don't even know. The Bible says you can't wear that. If it's a multi-blend of fabric, no, you need to wear wool. That's what it says in Leviticus 19.19. 19. How many of you have a beard? No woman included, just men. <laughs> so sorry. That was my, that was my head internalizing. That was, that's not funny. Stop laughing. Men, how many of you have a beard? Raise your hand. The Bible says don't trim your beard. That's what it says. Leviticus 19.27. And my favorite. My favorite. Woman speaking in church. I said, no, no. <laughs> zip it. So zip it. Not my wife. Not my wife. Not you. <laughs> it says woman cannot, should not, and will not speak in church. 1 Corinthians 14.34. I just gave you from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Things that we should not be doing because that was what was spoken back then. But somehow, somewhere, we're heathens and we're doing it today. But then there's something, there, 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 there may be something right next to that same passage that we're like, but that one, that one is for us today. So how do you know 
How do you know? How do you determine which thoughts, which ideas and understandings from Scripture to live your life by and which not to worry about? Is it arbitrary? Are you randomly picking and choosing? And if you are, does that mean that most people are just angrily defending things for personal reasons, not really biblical reasons, then blaming their views on God and the Bible? Because that's exactly what non-Christians think that you're doing. That's exactly what non-Christians think, think you're doing. Some of these quotes that, that we looked up, Christi uh, Penny says, Christian fundamentalists seem to use the Bible like a weapon, quoting verses out of context like bullets to shoot anything or anyone they don't like. Maya says Christians take apart take a take a part of the Bible and pull out the verses that they want to shame people with. They use whatever will help them control people in the way they want to. And Gary, <laughs> Gary just blows up. He says, I'll tell you what's scary. The Christians who take the Bible literally and go on crusades and campaigns to verbally beat the hell out of those who disagree with their particular interpretation. I bet Jesus is pretty pissed at them when they go and smugly claim he's on their side and behind everything that they say and do. Those are direct quotes from non-Christians. Most non-Christians think that if someone approaches a Christian with any source other than the Bible verse, they're instantly reject, right? They're instantly rejected without even reading or reviewing it. So what's the point? Which is why so many described us as restrictive, destructive, crippling, narrow-minded, outdated, dangerous, evil, fanatic, right-wing, bigoted, and anti-intellectual. Most Christians think, like to think that they're using the Bible correctly. But in all fairness to our critics, if you look through human history, the Bible has been used to justify or defend a lot of things we now regret and realize are wrong. Things like slavery, the Crusades, the Salem witch trials, or being anti-science. A banter that gets thrown around in some Christian circles is, if the Bible says it, then I believe it. And that settles it. But what the Bible says isn't as important as what the Bible means. What the Bible says isn't important as what the Bible means. You see, the reality is that you can read almost anything into the Bible if you don't know how to read it. You can read anything into the Bible if you don't know how to read it. So how do we read it, church? How do we, uh, how do we read this the proper way, the right way? Let me share with you today four, uh, four, uh, four helpful thoughts adopted from pastor, author, and theologian Dan Kimball's book, How Not to Read the Bible. Great book. Get it. We're going to talk about it today. The four reasons. Number one, the Bible is a library, not a book. The Bible is a library, not a book. 
It's 66 books containing multiple genres written in three different languages over 1,500 years by different people from different cultures, writing styles, perspectives, and personalities. Ultimately, what God wants in there is in there, but he intentionally chooses or chose to filter it through real people, real times, real places and contexts that need to be taken into account. They need to be considered when we read the Bible. We cannot just take something and just apply it to every day right now because maybe that's not what God purposed it or intended it for. Assuming the Bible is all one thing that's to be interpreted the same way, it's a huge mistake. For instance, If you pulled a book of poems off the shelf, you have certain ideas or expectations of what you're about to read. Poetry uses words with rhythm or rhyme to communicate in a way that it stirs the imaginations or emotions. It uses colorful words and often exaggerates to give you an overall big idea, right, a sense or feeling. You would wisely approach a book of poetry differently than a history journal, right? For example, the first part of Genesis is poetry. The first part of Genesis is poetry. Or if you grab the book on German law, if you grab the book on German law from the 1500s, you're going to want to pay, uh, pay, pay close attention to who these laws were written to and for what reason. You may not copy and paste these specific laws into today's culture because back then things were different. People were different. Part of the country was different. But there's most likely something redeeming at its heart. I'm sure you can get something out of it. I think the the genre that Bible readers find the most challenging is is the the, uh, apolyptic. Right? The book of Revelation and parts of Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah were written in this form which uses visions, which uses uh, symbols and numbers to communicate in code. Because most of these works were written during a time of persecution. So things had to be written secretly, Right? The writers used symbols that were understood by the persecuted, not by the persecutors. So they spoke in their own language to each other. These apocalyptic sections of Scripture had true meaning, but were not meant to be taken literally. So if you're waiting around for a four-headed dragon to judge a part of the country that you don't like, Chances are you misread something. Some of you haven't read the, read the revelations because you would have found that funny. That's all right. We're getting there. One famous theologian says it this way. Everything in the Bible is true and some of it actually happened. Some of you are like, oh my gosh. I am in theology 101 today. Because I'm learning things I've never even thought about or heard about before. But you came on a great day. In other words, parts of the Bible are literal literal, because they were written as literal. Other parts of the 
uh, of the Bible were not written in this way. Biblical authors make use of lots of figurative language, metaphors, similes, hyperbole, which is an exaggeration, or, or assigning human uh, attributes to these things. Second Timothy chapter 3 says, You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have been giving you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. So we need to understand that part first. What is the purpose of his word? Now the question isn't, is it useful? But how is it useful? Because not all scripture is useful in the same way for everyone in every moment. Just like I said a few weeks ago, my testimony is my testimony. You can't copy it. You can't, you can't duplicate it. It is one of a kind. It is mine and mine alone. And you have your testimony. And I can't copy your testimony. What God is doing in your life, it is one of one. And it is still changing and transforming every day that we live for Christ. And so we cannot take the word of God and say what happens to me is going to happen to the next person because that's not how it works. A big part of being a Christian is sorting through which parts of the Bible are literal, which parts of the Bible are metaphorical, which parts of the Bible are figurative, and which ones are contextual, right? It's all true. The question is, what kind of truth are you looking at? What kind of truth are you looking? In addition, there are two groupings of the books, right? There are two groupings. There's the Old Testament and there's the New Testament. And they're absolutely different. Some draw lines to the other. Some reference the other. But they're two different books. The word testament means covenant, which is essentially an agreement between two parties. The Old Covenant is an agreement that God had or God made with the people of Israel. Does that make sense? Right? Because the Old Testament talks a lot about the Israelites and what transpired and what they happened, what they did, what they didn't do. Right? Where they were going and what they needed. Right? Outlining in detail how they would relate to God and, and know Him. And then the New Covenant is an agreement that God made with all the people through Jesus. Right? Jesus jumps on the scene and oh, the New Testament arrives. And it documents everything that happened or how people are to relate through this new covenant, this new relationship that God wants to have. Does that make sense? The new one transcends the old one. I'll say that again. The new one transcends the old one. The new covenant outlines how all people of every ethnic background can relate to and worship God. This doesn't mean that the Old Testament is useless. It lays the foundation and tells the story that leads up 
to Jesus. Without the Old Testament, all we would know is Jesus jumps on the scene. But with the Old Testament, it kind of gives you a story of who God is and how he spoke to his people and what he wanted of his people. And then something didn't click for people, and so he sends his son Jesus. And now he says, hey, this is my son. This is whom you should follow. In other words, in layman's terms, the two testaments aren't talking about two different gods, but they're outlining two different ways of relating to God. Number two, the Bible is written for us, not to us. The Bible is written for us, not to us. Some books are letters written to new Christians after Jesus rose from the dead. Others are written to people who were in slavery thousands of years before Jesus was born. Some letters were written to specific churches in specific cities that were distorting Jesus' teachings in a very specific way. So how do we get to the bottom of what we're supposed to take away if, if that's the case? Well, we have to learn what it meant to them. Then, before we can know what it means to us now, we need to understand, comprehend, and see things of how it meant or how it spoke to them back then so that we can position ourselves to better understand what it means and what it speaks to us in this moment. And there are a lot of ways that we can get this twisted, church. Not all prophecies and promises are for you. I'll say that again. Not all promises and prophecies, though it is put in the Bible, are meant for you. Some of you are upset right now. They're like, no. I was holding on to that promise. I was holding on to that prophecy over my life. But imagine if the woman next door to you took the promises that you, the man, made for your wife. Your next-door neighbor took the promises that you made for your wife and tried to lay claims to that. How would that go? Someone's about to get murdered. Right? Because that's not for her. That's every, every woman here that's married says, no, that was for me. That's my promises. That's for me. For example, Jeremiah 29, 11. We've all read this scripture before. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. That's what the scripture says. And we love quoting that scripture. We speak it to every child, to every student, to every person that's trying to figure out where they're going, what they're wanting to do. They find themselves in a dump trying to figure, they're confused, right? We speak that word over them. But this is the thing. This was written to the Israelites in captivity. This was written to the Israelites in captivity. This was not uplifting to them. This is not uplifting to them. It was actually discouraging, right? He's literally telling them, one day, one day, Man, one day, not now, not tomorrow, but one day you'll be free and go back home. One day you'll be free and to go back home, but probably not for another 70 years. And every old person there was like, oh my gosh, really? When he says plans to prosper you, he means the collective view. 
not individually you, the collective you. He's literally saying, your grandchildren, your grandchildren are going to be great. They're going to walk into that land. They're going to attain what I have for them. And you're, you're probably going to die. See, we, don't, we, don't, we take things out of context and we don't understand what was going on and who he's speaking to at that precise moment. We just like the way it sounds. Some of you are not liking me right now. <laughs> the quietness, the stares at me. Some of you don't even want to look up. Friends, it's so easy to cherry pick this verse and say, man, this job's really tough right now, but I'll stick it out. I'm going to get a promotion really soon, right? They're going to give me a raise. I believe it. I'm going to lay claims onto it because God promises that he has plans for me that are prospering me and not harm me, plans for, for hope and a future. My boss is obligated, obligated by God to give me that. Not really. Not really. There's definitely a takeaway. Yes, absolutely, there's a takeaway. But that's not all of it. That's not all of it. Number three, the Bible is one big story, not isolated sound bites. The Bible is one big story, not isolated sound bites. Every Bible verse is written in a context, in a specific time period, for a specific purpose. Every verse fits within a larger story and really only makes sense inside that story. If you're watching a movie, a sentence doesn't make a sense, doesn't make sense outside of that scene, and that scene doesn't make sense if you don't understand the storyline in whole. The Bible is an epic story that is covering different time periods, generations, plots, twists, characters, and contexts. The Bible often quotes itself, then clarifies previous ideas for new people in a new context. Many of the laws we read in the Old Testament no longer directly apply to us because it's an old agreement, an old agreement outlining how certain people had to live their life, had to relate to God during that time. And yet all these Old Testament laws were revolutionary, forward-thinking at the time that they were written to written, showing value and dignity to people who weren't afforded it under any code at that time. So yanking a scriptural soundbite out of context causes a lot of problems for us and for people. For instance, Genesis 1.29 talks about eating plants, Right? Talks about eating plants. Does that mean that we're all supposed to be vegetarians? It did then. But then a few chapters later in Genesis 9, 3, God tells his people everything that moves will be food for you. Last time I checked, a plant didn't have legs and moved. Right? Just checking to see you there. This side. This side is, is good. You, you probably don't this, side, this side is sleepy on that side. God says one thing and then later updates it and adjusts it. Then in Luke chapter 24, verses 41 to 43, it says that Jesus eats fish. And he also participated in the Passover meal in Luke chapter 22, which requires eating lamb, which we know because of Exodus chapter 12, 
So Jesus, for those of you who thought Jesus wasn't a vegetarian, should you be one? That's really between you and God, God and your doctor. What you cannot do is make a case that everyone should be a vegetarian from that one verse. Does that make sense? I got a few minutes here. I'm going to run through this, this last one. The whole Bible points to and defers to Jesus. The whole Bible points to and defers to Jesus. I'm going to run through this really quick, so follow along. This doesn't mean that every verse in the Old Testament talks specifically about him or that we're to make allegorical connections to Jesus. It just means that the whole storyline is moving in the direction of Jesus. It's moving towards him. Jesus is the climax and the main character of the whole entire story. Not only that, but Jesus updates and adjusts certain expectations in Scripture with others. Again, he's explaining a new covenant. So if ever something in the old uh, covenant seems contrary, right, to something that Jesus says or does, as Christians, we go with the latter, which is Jesus. If something ever kind of contradicts what the Old Testament is saying in the New Testament, then you defer to the New Testament because everything is pointing to Jesus. For instance, in Matthew 12, right, we hear the story. It says that, uh, verse 1, at about that time, Jesus was walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and so they began breaking off some bread, some heads of grain, and eating them. But some Pharisees saw them do it and protested, look, your disciples are breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. They're speaking to Jesus, right? The law, meaning an Old Testament, in the, an Old Testament book in the Old Covenant about how the Jewish people, Jesus and his followers, disciples were all Jewish, are supposed to live in relationship with God, right? So the specific law being referenced here is about not working on the Sabbath, which these people observed to model God from the book of Genesis and, excuse me, and allow themselves to rest and spend focused time with him and their community relaxing and practicing gratitude and reminding themselves that everything isn't up to them. And that's the Old Testament idea of do not work on the Sabbath. In addition, there were lots of parameters set up around that law by the Jewish people themselves, not by God, to hopefully help prevent them from uh, coming close to breaking it. And a couple of those were don't pick grain, right? Don't pick grain. Don't walk over a certain distance, right? Both of what Jesus' disciples were doing. They were guilty. They were doing this. They were picking the grain and walking long distances, something that they shouldn't have done uh, uh, on the Sabbath according to old law because they were hungry and because they were trying to follow Jesus wherever he went. So basically, you have a bunch of church people saying you shouldn't do that it says so in the Bible. That's what they're doing. You shouldn't do that because it says so in the Bible without any concern for the people involved or knowledge of their situation. And church, we have been guilty of that. We have been guilty of that. 
Let's keep reading. In verse 3, Jesus said to them, Haven't you read in the Scriptures that David did what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God, and he and his companions broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. Verse 5, And haven't you read in the law of Moses that the priests on duty in the temple may work on the Sabbath? So Jesus' reply is, Yes, the Bible says that. And it also says this. He's given two references on the same topic. How do these things fit together and which is most important in the context? Let's keep reading. In verse 6, I tell you, there is one here who is even greater than the temple, but you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of the scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices, for the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. So Jesus closes with, I I have the authority over the temple and the law. I have authority over the temple and the law. And you're applying things incorrectly here because you're quoting things that you haven't done enough homework on. You can't go around spitting stuff if you haven't actually researched, if you haven't actually studied, if you haven't actually put the work in. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. Then Jesus went over to their synagogue where he noticed a man with a deformed hand. The Pharisees asked Jesus, does the law permit a person to work by healing on the Sabbath? They were hoping that he would say yes so they could bring charges against him. Then, right, they, they asked Jesus, man, they asked Jesus, what, what's his interpretation of a particular verse? They're trying to they ask Jesus, what's his interpretation? Hoping that his opinion would be different to theirs so that they can then say, ooh, you're wrong. You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, and get him in trouble. Verse 11, and he answered, if you had a sheep that fell into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you work to pull it out? Of course you would. And how, would you, uh, how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Yes, the law permits a person to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus basically says, yes, I agree with the wisdom of that law. I also think it is wise to know that to break that law in submission to a higher law. It's okay to break that law to get to a higher law, right? And the higher law in this case is saving the life or serving the needs of someone who is hurting Verse 13, then he said to the man, hold out your hand. And so the man held his hand and it was restored and just like the, it was just like the other one. Then the Pharisees called the meeting to plot how to kill Jesus. Listen, church, Jesus heals the guy and the religious leaders decide that they're going to kill him because they don't agree with his interpretation of Scripture. The Pharisees want to use a narrow interpretation of a couple of passages to prove that they're right to get their own way, to be able to control Jesus and make him look stupid in front of other people. But Jesus tries to have a broader conversation about the story Scripture is trying to tell, which ultimately points to his authority and self-sacrificial way of living on behalf of everyone else. They're both reading the same Bible. I want you to hold on to this. They're both reading the same Bible, but using it in different ways. And this isn't an isolated incident. Jesus did this all of the time. 
Right? That's why the Bible talks about right, a moment where Jesus says, man, you've heard this. You've heard it's been told this. You've understood this. But let me tell you this now. I've come to share a new thing, a do a new thing, right? He's bringing in that new covenant, that new way to relate and understand Scripture. He's essentially telling a predominantly Jewish audience who lived according to the old agreement, how the new agreement was going to work for all people everywhere. But there's one thing, one thing in all of his adjustments and everything that he has that has a common thread through it all. And that is found in John chapter 13. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you, you should love one another. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. James 2.8 says, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what he is so, he, that's where he is moving with all of this, to love one another. He calls it the royal law, meaning the law to govern all other laws, the one that gets the final say. What both Jesus and his brother James are essentially saying to us is a true Christian. A true Christian thoughtfully applies the Christ-like wisdom of Scripture to help their neighbors become whole. To make the lives of other people better. That's why we exist. That is why we follow Jesus. Because he wants, we, we already promised, the moment we said yes to Jesus, it, it, already, it, already, it already gave us a pathway into heaven, to the promised land for us. But while we're here on earth, while we're still here, he says, love one another. That's what I want you to do. Make the lives of others, people better. Don't make it difficult. Don't start ca causing controversy and fighting over Listen, I went to jury court. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and we're going to wrap this up. I went to jury court this past week, and there was a case. And I didn't want to be there. I told my wife, I don't want to go. 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 I don't want to be there. I've never been there. I've been avoiding the jury for the longest. I got busted. And they called me in. I, my wife could be a witness. I was like, I, I dreaded it. Dreaded what? Going down to San Fernando and all this stuff, being there. Got to wait. And then they call and stuff and made me all nervous. And I was like, Lord, give me an a, a, a end number. Because if you give me an end number, all these people in front of me got to go. What does he do? Give me number 17. The first 18 make it through. Anyway, that's my story. Long story short. Here's, here's the point. The judge, it was a criminal case. And it had to do with something just funky and nasty. And the judge, because you have to say what your profession is. And so the lawyer comes to me and trying to kind of see if I'm fit. He says, hey, do you have an issue with this? I was like, yes, I do. And I, and I, I, I wasn't really trying to get out of it. He asked me if I had an issue. And he says, why do you have an issue? And I said, because morally, that doesn't line up with my heart. Morally, it doesn't line up with my heart. And then they ask anybody else, hey, anybody else have an issue with that? Everybody, oh, yeah, that religion shouldn't be brought into this. No, no, no I'm cool. Don't, you know, yeah. And I was like, you bunch of heathens. <laughs> right. That was my thought. Then the judge says, number 17. 
I know you have your moral beliefs and blah, 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 blah. She says, but by the law, if the law is stated here, do you have an issue with deciding yea or nay? And after a while, like, we went around and, and at first I kind of just brushed off, like, yeah, yeah, I'm good. But I sat there with conviction in my heart because I kept trying to dissect what she was asking me. I needed time to process. My CPU was a little slow that day. And I was trying to process it. And I kept sitting there and I started feeling myself wiggle. And I started to break in a little sweat. And then she said earlier, if you have an aha moment, please raise your hand. And I had an aha moment. She said, yes, Mr. 17. I said, I have an aha moment. She goes, oh, enlighten us. I was like, you being sarcastic? No, I didn't say anything to the judge. But I said this. Earlier you asked me this question, and I agreed to it. But here, here's my thought upon it. I believe the law is necessary. The law is necessary to govern people, to move people, to keep society safe and, and kind of keep people in line. Without it, we would be a hot mess. But I also believe that based on people's opinions, circumstances, perspectives, upbringing, childhood, their understanding today, it creates a lot of gray area. And when there's a lot of gray area, the law is subject to interpretation. And you're asking me to see black and white. And honestly, I can't see black and white. Because you're asking me to put aside my faith in God so that I can adhere to the law. When deep down inside, morally, that makes my heart hurt. I believe in love and I believe in grace and I believe in mercy and I'm willing to give it. But to stand here and say, I'm going to go by the law and law alone because that is my ultimate, that is the guideline that I'm using, I can't do that. Because everything that I, I have tried to do for the last 20 plus years of my life, all that I've invested in my children and how to raise my children, and all that I am trying to preach from a platform and teach my people to follow is not the law, it's the Word of God. And I want to tell you right now that the Word of God is going to contradict with your law. And there are things that line up and there are things that don't. And right now, this doesn't line up. I don't care what testimony comes through. I'm not saying that he's guilty or not. I'm saying, oh, I cannot put aside my belief. What I stand for and what ultimately guides my life. Does that make sense? A true Christian thoughtfully applies the Christ-like wisdom of Scripture to help their neighbors become whole. Here's a point, church. Being led by Scripture isn't about abandoning reasoning. It's about leaning or learning to read and apply Scripture according to its own ancient rules, not our modern ones. We do this by following the four parameters above, but also freeing Scripture from the expectation that it should be something it's not and doesn't claim to be. Scripture doesn't claim to be a science book, a documentary film, a medical journal. The Bible can work in tandem 
with these things because it is not in competition with them. Science is not in conflict with Scripture because the two set out to accomplish different things and are written according to different rules. Science and medicine aim to answer questions of what and how. Scripture aims at answering questions of who and why. Scriptures ought to help us be more reasonable, not less, by connecting us to the source and point us all to wisdom. And if we're reading it right, if we're reading it right, it ought to point us to Jesus and compel us to sacrificially love our neighbors better day after day. So if you're a Christian, don't forget about how others who cannot, who, who, who you cannot control are doing it. And instead, ask yourself, where am I using Scripture as an excuse not to sacrifice on behalf of someone else? Where am I using Scripture to kind of get my point across instead of loving and caring for someone else? I hope that preaches and teaches you today to all of us. I hope there's a lot of light bulbs going, aha, I get it. I understand it now. For the benefit of loving our neighbors. Amen.